1: You fathead! <laughs> you would be surprised what it... Uh, oh, I'm on the air. It's all right. So don't, don't you see the, these little girls there? They, it's all part of the window dressing. We won't be on for another half hour. <laughs> Ted Malley is still giving his weather. So just be calm out there. You know, uh, since, we, since we are here now at the Limelight... Are we all at the Limelight gang? Let's hear it! Yeah. What a hole! <laughs> and it's in the heart of sizzling, live, dynamic, honest, clear, clean-cut Greenwich Village, where the search for truth goes on endlessly. Right, gang? Yay! Yay! We're searching for the truth tonight, eh? Yeah, oh. yeah, I can hear that. You notice how they chicken it out when you said the truth? There's a little fear. <laughs> You know, have you ever had the feeling that 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 you take the average person, especially men, I don't know about women, but I can tell you, the average man, he's walking down Fifth Avenue or he's walking down the main street in Trenton, just walking along, you know. You put your hand on his shoulder and say, okay, buddy, it's all over. He'd say, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I, I'm sure that the average guy... <laughs> always waits for the heavy hand on his shoulder. <laughs> and, and when you use the word truth, he always thinks it's in, it's, in, it's in connection with somebody else's rottenness. But you look a guy right in the eye and say, the truth is going to come out one day, and then what? <laughs> well, I want to tell you what. For the past two weeks, I have been living with the Beatles or as they would call it, the Beatles. And I've, I've been in uh, Dundee, Scotland, I've been in Edinburgh, I've been in London where they work, Leeds, Liverpool. I've been in all these various cities on a, on a, whole, on a whole series of one night stands with the Beatles, living with them, stay, living in their room with them, in their dressing room, riding through the dark countryside trying to escape the fanatics and observing England from the other side of the glass. Now, we're all Americans here, and the one thing that Americans are used to, they're used to constantly being under the scrutiny of other people. For example, Beyond the Fringe comes to New York, and it's a satire by Britishers mostly about America. We sit out there and applaud, you know, and somehow it seems right that Peter Cook should tell us what's wrong with Congress, you know. Somehow Peter Cook knows all of the the, the things that are happening in the American presidential election and so on, but it never works the other way. I I suppose you're aware that if I were to appear in Britain, uh, they would not immediately nominate me to play Richard the Lionhearted. And yet, are you aware that they're casting a movie here in America and they've just recently cast a man to play Abraham Lincoln. Guess what nationality he is. <laughs> we're going to have a British Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and somehow, you know, that makes him more official, you know? <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that Laurence Olivier or somebody like that is playing Lincoln seems a lot more real than if, say, an American were to play Lincoln. Because, uh, you know, there's a, there's a little thing there. Well. I, being a good American, of course, I have been completely awash in Britain ever since I was a kid. We take English literature in school. We go to drama. We study English poets, English history. In fact, most of us know more about English history than we do American history. And so now I find myself in England, in the real thing, Sitting in a little tiny, superheated, stinking, smelling dressing room, knee deep in fish and chips and beer, with the Beatles, England's final answer to Richard the Lionhearted. <laughs> you know, it's it's a, it's a weird thing. And out in the darkness, I can hear the sound of millions of girls screaming. It's a it's a it's a children girl thing, you know, in England. And you hear it sounds like a thousand sirens going off in the distance. It's just a high-pitched wail. It goes, whee! It goes in waves, whee! And then one of the beetles says to another beetle, I think it was George said to Paul, he said, Paul, you're a beetle. And Paul says, Hi. And George says, Paul, you're a beetle. Pass a miracle. Work out, walk on water walk on water and paul says okay and he goes to the window sticks his head out with the hair you know Whoa! the whole world explodes he, cur- he throws it back again and he turns back to me and he says are you B-O people I said no he said well then sit down and have a beer
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I'll tell you that, that, that the, the sense of unreality I think that that these people feel nothing is real out there anymore. And they have to drive at night at 3 o'clock in the morning through secret roads that are guarded by police so that people will not attack out of the bushes. And at night when you're sitting in the back seat of the car and the Beatles are hiding down on the floor at 3 o'clock in the morning going God knows where, being protected from God knows what you begin to have a slight realization of what mankind is about and you don't really quite like it and at the same time you can't help it because you're part of it it's like being in the army any of you in the army in this crowd well you know you know the sense of being in the army and you've got a uniform on you're walking around like other people and yet you're not part of it I wonder whether or not anyone has ever recorded that one facet of Army life, that when you're in the Army, the other people are totally unreal. The civilians, they seem to be another race, and that's the way it is with the Beatles. Today, the world is like Mars to the Beatles. They're the only real thing, just four of them sitting there, eating a steak drinking a beer, and it's all brought to them, you know. They're never allowed to walk on the street like normal people. They're never allowed to even look out of the window because riots... How would you like that fantastic sense of power that if all you, all you had to do was go to the window and say, kill each other, <laughs> boom, boom, <laughs> the knives would come out.
2: <laughs>
1: That's exactly what they do, and, and, and they do it often, you know. <laughs> Once in, a while, once in a while, Paul will sit there, you know, and they get a little bored, and they're all sitting around in their T-shirts. And outside, you can hear the rest of the acts going, you know, you can hear the rock and roll roaring around. And suddenly, Lennon, or maybe Paul will get up, and, uh, you like a little excitement? And Ringo says, uh.
2: <laughs>
1: That's Ringo's total vocabulary. It's not one of the brighter people. <laughs> But he's sweet, girls, all right. <laughs> I wish I could tell you the real stories of the Beatles. <laughs> <And> Ringo Rinko goes, <laughs> Rinko goes, uh. And then Paul goes up, usually he, he, he goes up to the window, he says, watch this. I'll try to do the Liverpudlian accent. He says, oh, watch this. He walks to the window and he has maybe a potato chip anything that's just an ordinary little piece of nothing, a cigar butt, you know. He's got a paper cup. He said, watch this. And he looks out the window and he just peeks out a little bit. You know, they have drawn shades and everybody is out there. The whole city of Glasgow is out there, millions of them. And just five minutes before, you know, you, you have an idea of the kind of madness this thing is because we're sitting in this tiny little dressing room, sweaty, hot, showbiz. These are rock-and-roll performers, you know, and they're, they're, they're very simple, very earthy, basic people. They're just like showbiz people everywhere. They don't read. <laughs> you know, they, they just sit there, see, and there's, there's a little knock on the door, just like this. Now, I want to I show you a scene. little knock on the door, and one of them looks up and says, Who's there? And the door opens just a crack, and it's one of their managers. And he says, excuse me, Paul, the Lord Mayor of Glasgow is here. The Lord Mayor. Ringo turns to Paul, pops his ear. John goes, spits. And then somebody says, let him in. (laughs) And the little Lord Mayor comes in. Remember, this is the Lord Mayor of the city of Glasgow. He comes in with his hat in his hand. Are you the Beatles? And they say, I, we're the Beatles. Who are you? He says, I'm the Lord Mayor of Glasgow. Ah, politician, eh? <laughs> yes, yes. We've got to get back to work. He says, thank you for letting me in. And the door closes. Now, what kind of madness is this? I observed this. And then we are in Dundee. Now, Dundee is a Scottish town on the coast of Scotland, and it's hard and rough. It's a fisherman's town. And in fact, I'm not in town five minutes, and I'm walking past this little tiny store, and the window is filled with knives, millions of tough, rough-looking knives. And I'm curious, you know, it it doesn't impress me as the JD sort of town, you know? It, It looked like 42nd Street. But these are real big bone-handled knives, you know, the real stickers, real toad stickers, you know. And so I go into this place, I figure I'm going to get myself a real souvenir this time, you know. <laughs> something that I can use back home. <laughs> See, I'm in radio, friends, you know. <laughs> and so, so I go into this joint, and here's this little lady standing back, a little Scottish lady, and I go into the, into the, into the store, and her little daughter or something is with her, and they are totally unused to seeing Americans. Americans do not come to Dundee, especially in the off season. And especially they don't come to a little second rate what appears to be an Army, Navy store where they had a collection of old maces from old crusades, you know, left. Over. That's the way with the British Isles, you know, you can buy some great surplus there. So I walk in and I'm standing there and, and their, their, their Scottish dialect is so almost totally unintelligent. And I said to her, what are the knives out in the window? Uh, I'd like to look at some knives. And she says, sure, those those knives are for killing sharks. I said, for what? They're killing, for killing sharks. The fishermen here use them for sharks. I said, the fishermen use them for sharks. I mean, this is not like Jones Beach, you know. (laughs) And so I bought myself a knife and I walked out with this fantastic knife, great big toad sticker and it came with a leather sheet. So I, I, you know, I'm very little embarrassed by this thing. What do you do with it? You walk down the street, and they didn't wrap it, you know. They don't hardly wrap anything in England. I've got a big knife. (laughs) Walking down the street, and I didn't go 20 feet, and a man came right at me wearing high rubber boots, and he had a toad sticker that went down to his kneecap. Just clunk, clunk, clunk. He walks past me. Great big Scottish shark fisherman. They fish for shark livers there, and you could smell them a mile. He walks past, you know, my eyes clouded up. And he... <laughs> By the way, I'd love to show you how, I, I just wish we weren't on the air. I could, I could, I could, I, I've been working on it. I, I, I will entertain my friends with this, but you ought to hear a Scottish, a Scotsman swearing. It is honest to God, it sounds like a fantastic symphony. I have never seen creative swearing like you hear a Scotsman. And I sat in the back of a Scottish taxi cab in Glasgow, which is one of the toughest cities in the Western world. And we were going through the side streets of Glasgow, and this guy kept up a steady stream of stuff. At first, I thought he had bad tappets. (laughs) I thought his valve springs were bad. He just swore, (laughs) and it's all in Scottish, and somehow when it comes out with those rolling R's and that, it sounds cute. You know, we, we go right down the mainstream, right, right down the mainstream of traffic, and I become aware of a, of a sullen undertone of the same thing going on. And that's the way you drive a cab in that town. I don't think they use gas. It just <laughs> What a tough city. So, so now you've got an idea of, of, what, of what Dundee is like. It's rough, tough, you see. And I am there with the Beatles. The Beatles are playing this little theater. There's about 3,000 seats in it, and it's bigger than the town, you know. And the Beatles have arrived, and the fishermen are coming in, big guys with boots and funny hats on with the knives and stuff. They're clomping in. And now we're in the dressing room in Dundee, Scotland. It's a very strange thing for an American to get inside of life. Most of us Americans are rarely admitted To this kind of a world and the Beatles were sitting in their dressing room waiting for their dinner and out just where the sea began you could hear millions of scottish kids screaming just a steady beat you could just hear it coming in and the rain was coming down and you could hear the toad stickers clanking out there oh it's a strange (laughs) surrealistic world and i i just wondered what it was all about you know have you ever had these moments When everything seemed so unreal that if you were to walk across the room and to float six inches right off over the carpet, it wouldn't surprise you, you know? I couldn't put anything together. I had only been out of America about three days, and now I'm in the back room of a ramshackle old theater in Dundee, Scotland. And you could smell oatmeal. You know, the Scots live on oatmeal. You could smell oatmeal. And they, me, and they drink scotch whiskey. They really do drink it. And when you walk through the streets, you can smell it everywhere. <laughs> You're stepping over, you know, all the time. Well, they, they really put it away. And, and the Beatles are sitting there, and they're passing it around in paper cups. We're in Scotland. I'm trying to get my bearings, and there's a knock at the door. Now, get this scene. This is the Beatles... In Dundee Scotland this is an ancient part of the British Empire there's a knock at the door and one of the Beatles says "Who's is that? and I hear another little knock and it's their secret knock which says it's okay open up And so Lennon goes over and he takes the door and he just sort of peeks out and there is one of their managers and he says he says a countess is here And Lennon turns to the other Beatles and he says, a countess. And Ringo says, let her in. (laughs) Let's take a look at her. (laughs) I says, a countess, coming to see this, you know? But sure enough, the door opens and in came this magnificent, she really looked exactly the way you think a regal countess should look. She's dressed in furs, she's tall, thin, She has a peculiar kind of ring she wore, and she just sort of held her hand this way. And she walked in, and behind her were two ladies-in-waiting and a tiny little chauffeur, wearing little black hats and black puttees, you know, like those in in Indians, you know. And and I'm standing there, you know, watching this. My God, I I had the terrible feeling of being an, an eavesdropper on something I shouldn't have seen, you know. And the Countess comes in, and here are the Beatles, all with their shirts off, one is sitting there picking his toes, his shoes off. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not inventing it. They're all sitting, and not one of them gets up. You know, they're all sitting like this. And the, and the countess comes in, her fur is trailing behind her, and you could just hear the sound of these medieval trumpets rising. You know, it was the British Empire. She walks in and stands in the middle of the room. Nobody said a word. Until finally, Paul said, I hear you're a countess. She says, yes, I am a countess. Yes, yes. Are you the Beatles? And Ringo belts John in the short ribs and says, get this, are we the Beatles? Is she putting you on? You know, their hair all hanging there. You know, the Beatles, it's like asking, are you Santa Claus? You know, the big dear. And and so so one of them finally, you know, I said, Well, when are they gonna ask her to sit down or something? You know, and here they are, there's they're, they're shoving potato chips in their one you know, One's eating the potato, one guy's got a piece of fish hanging out. And, like the scotch, they're belting it out. And and she finally says, she says, we have driven all the way over from the castle to see you and I'm so delighted that you've allowed us to come backstage I love your work Ringo says huh <laughs> and she says yes we play your records at the castle all the time and somehow I had that suddenly I could hear it rock and roll booming out through the castle you know. You just don't want to think of England, do you? You don't, you don't want to see C. Aubrey Smith and Lawrence Olivier digging Presley, and you know, I walking around yes. spitting and yelling. Well, finally, there was a there was a long pregnant pause, and Lennon, who is is, is the most civilized of the Beatles, suddenly he comes to her and he says he says, Sit sit down. Sit down, Carl, sit down. And she sits down you ever seen a countess sit? She really did, you know, and all the beetles are loud, looking at her. So she sits down, and her furs go down like this, and she's got a ring. She sits and looks, and she says, which beetle are you? And the beetle in question says, George, like in King. <laughs> So help me, I heard it! (laughs) And she goes, Yes, yes! How funny! And then, then Lennon says to her, he says, Are you a real Countess? She says, Yes, I am. And then Paul says, Where's the Count? She says, Well, he didn't come tonight. And we waited for a moment. It was one of those great moments of classical human behavior, it sort of hung there for a second. And then Lennon said to her, he says, what kind of castle do you live in? She says, well, it's a very big one. It's called Glamis Castle. Yes. (laughs) Glamis Castle, in case you don't know, is the oldest of all the great castles in England. And she's talking to four Englishmen. Remember that. And one of them says, Glamis, where's that? Even I knew, you know. And she says, well, it's, it's, you turn left at the road down at the end and you you turn at Route 7 and you just continue on. You can't miss it, you know. It's a big castle. And McCartney says, how many rooms does it have? And so, help me, she turns to her lady-in-waiting and says, Oh, uh, Lady Barbara, that would be in your department. How many do we have? And Lady Barbara sat for a second. She says, I believe 238. And Paul says, You've got plenty of room for your relatives, haven't you? And, and she says, yes, we have a locked room. And Lennon then comes back with a question, by the way, that is a pure American question. When was it built?
2: <laughs>
1: Only Americans ask this. And Lennon said, how old is it? She said, I believe, I believe it was started in 1067. 1067. <laughs> and I'm listening to this fantastic story of the British Empire unfolding right out there before me, and the countess finally said, you could see she was the master of all difficult situations. This is the thing that sets the aristocracy apart and above us, and she didn't know how to end the conversation, and she finally said, she says, you'll have to come and visit me. Why don't all of you come to the castle? And Paul said, hey, that ain't a bad idea. We're staying in a damn motel tonight.
2: <laughs>
1: and you can see automatically, you know, the, the poor the poor countess can see four drunken Beatles arriving at 4 in the morning yelling with 8 million fans in Glamas Castle.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she says, she says, that would be lovely. Now, may I have your autographs? And one after the other... Paul, George, George, Ringo, and that's the end of it, and she walks to the door, and the Beatles, not once getting up, fish and chips, their gin going, slugging away their scotch, she gets to the door, and one of them says, oh, Countess, have you eaten? Would you like something to eat? She says, it looks very good.
2: <laughs>
1: and out she went to the sound of more trumpets. Well, I sat there, you know, and I thought, for crying out loud, you know, I'm an American. You know, this I shouldn't have seen this. Somehow it didn't seem right that I should see a thing like this. That was she slumming or were the Beatles slumming? It was very hard to tell. She went out, walked down the hallway, and Paul said to John, he said, you know, you guys, that's a real countess. John says, yes, I've seen countesses before. They always wear coats like that. And Ringo goes, uh. And that was the total discussion of the countess and her life. Now, the next night, I thought, you know, this is a fluke. And so the, 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 the big concert went on, and the people screamed and yelled, and I... It was, it was almost like a kind of fever in the air. It was like the bubonic plague. It was very hard to t- it's hard to describe it to you. It's as if the entire country has decided it's going out of its skull. And they have appointed the Beatles to be the reason. And the Beatles recognize now they don't even sing anymore. You know, they just go out on the stage, and woo, it starts, and they wave a little bit, and then they go off. And the roaring continues for hours. So about two hours later, I'm in the back seat of the Beatles car and we're heading for the Scottish Highlands. Have you any of you ever been in the Highlands? It's a very interesting experience. These hills climb all the way to the sky. The, 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 the country is the, probably the most beautiful in the world, next to Switzerland and possibly even Switzerland included. You can't believe it. And it's a 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and we are screaming down a highway. At 95 miles an hour in a gigantic Austin Princess, which is about the size of a super, really, let's say, a super deluxe Rolls. They've got it floored, and we're screaming through this little country road, taking corners on one wheel, just whoo, and I'm sitting in the back with the Beatles, you know. I said, what's the matter, what are you doing here, Shepard, what is this? And they're all sitting back, they're changing clothes. Do you know that their clothes zip on? Are you aware that those, those little skinny suits they wear, they, you can't put them on? And that their pants zip all the way up the back. They have a guy that zips them all up, zips them, and they walk out. <laughs> you know, they stand like this. That's why. Right. Have you noticed the Beatles don't move much when they're on stage? They don't make any Elvis movements or anything. They just sort of stand there, you know, like little dolls they wave. <laughs> They got springs and everything. They're all zipped up, and the curtain goes down. It's wild. The curtain goes down. They all turn to the right, and a guy rushes out and he goes ooh 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 ooh. Then they walk. <laughs> the Beatles. <laughs> oh, what an insane time! So I'm, I'm, I'm riding through. I'm riding through this countryside with them. I can't believe it, you know. I says, this this is England. This is this is what we in America all have a vague sense of inferiority about. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, the road was lined with, with dour looking people just looking out from behind haystacks, waiting for the Beatles to go by. 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and you could see them holding lanterns up, and we're sailing through the countryside, and every car that they saw, they would throw rocks at. <laughs> this is a form of love in Scotland, by the way. And you'd see the rocks bouncing across the street, and the beetles said, get down there. Here we come. Watch the one by the haystack. Watch that nut. And you, boop boing, you hear the rocks. And I'm sitting there, and says, oh,
2: <laughs>
1: what would King Arthur have thought, you know?
2: <laughs>
1: How would he have handled it? Well, we went, we went deeper and deeper into the countryside until we finally arrived at the lock where we were staying. You know, the Beatles, in case you're interested, There are more security regulations governing the places where the Beatles stay than that which governs the president. Seriously. That people are sworn to secrecy all over the countryside, and wherever they stay, they always stay outside of town in the most likely place, the most likely place for anything but Beatles. Like they'll stay in a little place that's marked Diner. Just stay there overnight. Or they'll be in a little place marked Motel, and they'll stay there. Well, we were staying in a tiny inn next to an ancient Scottish Loch Loch which is one of the most ancient and most revered. And, and in fact, Bonnie Prince Charlie had fought a battle 20 feet away from where I was staying. That little plaque out there. Rob Roy had robbed somebody 20 feet outside the other way. Yes, I'm serious. And, and everywhere you saw this strange, tartan quality of the world, because this is really Scotland. We arrived about 3 o'clock in the morning, and the innkeeper is there. You can see that this is the greatest moment of his entire life. He had been knighted. He had been designated. It was like a visitation. It was like a second coming or something happening there. And he stood by the door, sort of bent over, tugging at his forearm. Are the Beatles there? And I said, yes, they're con- They're, they're going to be. He says, are you with them? And I says, yes, I'm one of the party. He says, may I shake your hand? Put her there. <laughs> I'm one of the Beatle party, you know. Somehow that made me a real, made me, it made me part of this whole scene. And the Beatles slowly straggled up the hill in darkness. And one after the other, they came in through the door. And a couple of managers were all arrived out and back in their little cars, and we went into the bar. I want to give you a, a typical vignette in Beatle, in the Beatle world that you never hear about. The strange world of the... I can only say that this is the world of... I guess the word would be almost delirium. It's like the world has become delirious. It's surrealistic. Remember, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. We're next to a Scottish lock, an old, old lock with hills surrounding it. There's not a sound for miles. It's a sullen, quiet, angry countryside. And all of us go up to the bar, little tiny bar in the inn. Paul, John Lennon, George, Ringo, the manager, and he brings out a bottle of sherry. This apparently was a bottle of sherry he'd saved since the last coronation, and he was saving it for the next one. He brings out the sherry, and he says, would you like a glass of sherry? Uh. <laughs> John says, sherry, what's a sherry? Who drinks sherry, man? He says, what will you have? I have anything you want. He's got scotch, he's got all the fine stuff there. Each one of us was poor a little drink. We started to sip the drink when, without warning, there was a sound outside in the darkness, a hum like the hum of angry bees at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it was getting closer and closer. You could just hear it. It was coming like a big storm. And the Beatles are doing nothing. They're just sort of standing. And I said to the man behind the desk. I says, what is this? A storm? He says, I don't know what that sound is. Must be something on the road. And just when he got this out of his mouth, the door slams open and there stands a Scottish constable. And he says, are the Beatles staying here? And the man behind the bar says, yes sir, yes sir. He says, I have just called out all available men. There are 20,000 people coming this way. What are you going to do about it? What have you done to us? And the Beatles calmly, just drinking their scotch. And that night, we spent in total darkness with a ring of policemen in the hills. Five hundred policemen keeping the entire British Isles away. And you could hear the hum of them out there. You could hear them in the trees. You could hear them in the hills. And once in a while, you'd hear a little wave of...
2: Ah! Just,
1: wow, And it would trail off. And it's now 3.30, quarter to 4. And a couple of the very famous local gentry had been allowed to come and see the Beatles at first hand. One of these strange little vignettes. A tall, thin girl, obviously the, the sweet Beetle fan type, you know, she comes over and she stands behind one of the beetles. She's just been admitted to see them. She can't believe it, you know, because they don't look, they're not real to people anymore. They're kind of like dolls or strange little automatons. And here they are, there's four sitting there. And she walks over behind and she just sort of looks down and by mistake, she brushed one of the beetles' coat and he whirled on her and he says, get your filthy hands off me. Well, he wasn't being funny. And she sort of ducked back. He says, nobody touches me after midnight. She said, yes, yes. And then there was a kind of an embarrassed pause, and the Beatles kept eating. And finally she said, may I have your autographs? And one of the other Beatles looked up at her and says, will you clear out? And she says, thank you thank you thank you and out the door she went and the Beatles sat in total control of their world they would either admit people or they would deny them they would either give them an audience or they would turn them down and believe it or not it got to the point with me you know I'll tell you there's a funny thing in human beings where I began to feel special myself because they talked to me. Yes! This is the kind of nuttiness that must have created a Hitler. Must have felt good to a guy, you know, to walk in and have Mr. Hitler say, oh, hello, there goes Hans. Hi, Hans. (laughs) How many of you would like to be greeted by first name by, say, Lucky Luciano? (laughs) No, it's a secret thing. We all have a secret desire to somehow be greeted on a first-name basis by somebody who is a real myth and a legend. And up to this point, you know, I had been a non-believer. And I saw this happening. Nobody got angry at the Beatles. Oh, no. When the Beatles would throw somebody out, like the Countess, just hurl her out in the street, it was all And she felt pleased to have spoken with them for a moment. And so it got to the point where I would come in And John would look up and say, how are you doing, Gene? I would glow. (laughs) The Beatles recognized me, you know? And when one of them would say to me, "Oh, would you like a drink, huh? Here, have a bite drink. And he'd hand me the drink, the great warmth would come out again. (laughs) And I realized that I had been admitted to Olympus. I was allowed to be on the same plane a world phenomenon, fascinating, and I, and you know, I kept trying to say, "Don't worry." I kept trying to say to myself later, "I'd get out of the room." You know, I was over there on a special assignment to do a piece for a major magazine on the Beatles, and I would get out of the of the room. You know, and they've talked to me. We've sat and had drinks and stuff, and I would get out on the, into the into into the privacy of the of a hotel aisle or a hotel. Hallway, and I'm walking along, the office, and all of a sudden I says, What are you doing? This is a rock and roll group. These are the Beatles. For God's sake, Shepard, get a grip on yourself. <laughs> and then the door would open down there, and McCartney would stick his head out and he'd say, Hey, Gene, when you come back, knock twice. We'll let you in. We don't want to let anybody else just knock twice. And he'd slam the door, and then I'd say, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> God recognizes me. Well, you know, I learned something then. I learned how possible it must be for a reporter to remain objective in the presence of the very great. Now, notoriety can be greatness, you know. I remember one day down in the Yankee bullpen, before a ball game, one of the hard-hitting, angry writers from the post, you know, the post works in anger, you know, like other people work in clay and marble in you know, the really fuck. <laughs> they look at the Yankees as a plot against the Mets, you know.
2: <laughs>
1: and 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 one of these one of these hard-hitting <clears throat> angry reporters, you know, almost all of the, the almost all of the really angry writers are very undersized little guys with thick glasses. It's just what it's what makes it come out, you know, and I'm standing back down there, way out by the bullpen. You know where the Yankees have the bullpen, way out in the corner there? You expect to see nobody out there. Well, standing right next to the bullpen wire fence is Roger Maris. He's just standing there. He's been chasing fly balls. And you know how, how Maris stands anyway. He's got that snotty way of standing, you know, just <laughs> that real loose way. You know, one hip is flung out, you know, he's got his hat straight-on hat he's got the mitt there and and Maris is just surveying his entire kingdom you know from out around that that bullpen you can see all of Yankee Stadium you can see the press box you can see 80,000 people you can see those three tombstones over here and Roger is in his he's in his his milieu and he really is the king of it so I am standing out there I I, you know I I don't say anything I'm an observer I, I just I make it my, my, a rule of thumb is to keep your mouth shut unless spoken to. I found this works very well, so I'm out there sort of walking past. I'm seeing Raj, Raj is standing there with that big number nine on his back. He's wearing the, the home uniform, <laughs> he spits. And I see this little New York Post writer come scurrying around the edge of the path. man, you know, big, he comes up, you know, <laughs> hi, Raj. Raj looks down. Hi, Ray. I've invented a name. He just says, hi, Ray. That little guy straightened up. You could see his gut pulling.
2: <laughs>
1: Raj is doing nothing. He's watching the flags, you know. He doesn't even know. He's just waiting for his time at bat, you know, in, this, in, the, in the cage. And the little man says to him, how does it look today, Raj? Do you think we'll do it today? Do you think we'll do it? do you think we'll do it and Raj just simply says I don't know why he's going it's pretty good the little guy says that's what I thought looks good he scurries away and the next day I read this piece in the post and it's a hard hitting expose of why they should trade Roger Maris (laughs) (laughs) And I and I thought, you know, I thought, gee, you know, so much of this so much of this is is the is that problem of objectivity. Have you ever thought how it must be to travel around the country in a presidential train where you're really with the president, and the president comes in every five minutes after giving one of these whistle stop speeches and sits down next to you, eats a sandwich? drinks a beer, maybe, or has a glass of milk, begins to know you, begins to know that your name is Myrtle, this is old Ray here, and there's Fred. How can you possibly keep your objectivity? I, I know many uh, a good drama critic who is totally ruined that day that Olivier begins to call him... Ber- Forget it. It's never going to happen again. Never be able to observe the scene with that old cold light of objectivity. And as I rode throughout that countryside, I found myself slowly becoming not only a Beatle fan, but a Beatle. Yes, I began to, you know, when the screams were out there, they were screaming for me. You know, I was sitting in the crowd with them. I was part of it, you know, they were me. And I'd walk to the window. You know, one thing about Beatle fans they scream at anything that moves (laughs) you got to understand that anything that moves they scream at and and even if it doesn't move if they think it's moving they scream and so one of the band boys one of the kids who worked in in the Edinburgh theater all he did was set up the drums you know that kind of jazz he came backstage and there's this little window looking out over the alley where there are 18 million kids screaming for the Beatles and he was talking to one of the Beatles about setting up the equipment. You know, just a straight conversation. Like, what do you want it? You want it back over there or over here? And one of the beetles says, ah, don't worry about it, mine. I'll adjust it myself. He says, okay, okay. And then he turned and walked to the window. Just stood there for a minute. And then pulled the curtain back and looked out. And there's a fantastic,
2: <laughs>
1: he pulls it back. He turns back to the crowd, and he says, "Just once I wanted to scream for me." <laughs> "Just once." Now, that sounds like I invented it, but so help me, That's exactly what happened. He says, "Just once I wanted to scream for me," Which brings up a point. How many of you secretly scream for whatever it is you scream for, whether it's a presidential candidate, whether it's a philosophy, whether it's a beetle? How many of you scream? How many of us scream just out of the sheer exuberance of screaming for something? Just screaming for anything. Anything that that, that somehow will respond to our screams, like bow a little bit. I I have a feeling that, that one day in some of our major countries, there will be mechanical devices which will be set up to receive and record the quality and the quantity of screams that we can hurl at. And that we will have favorite machines. Somebody will like the green one. Somebody will like the red one. Somebody will like the blue one. And every night they will put another one of these on stage for us to go scream at. Now, hear that? Whose watch? (laughs) Strange. But it's it's a curious thing to sit backstage in in, in with the Beatles and, and see the kind of madness they engender. Do you know that when the Beatles are on stage, not one person listens? Are you aware of that? And and a good twenty-five to thirty minutes before the Beatles come out, the thing starts. Their screaming starts. And they, they don't sit, of course. They all stand and And have you ever seen paintings by Hieronymus Bosch? Well, I stood on the stage. Let me tell you, the the wildest scene of all is not to watch the Beatles, but I stood on the stage apron, back, just back of the curtain where you could see out and they couldn't see you, and I watched the audience. And whoever was staging this, I'm telling you, it was a fantastic job of staging. They had red lights playing over the audience just back and forth, red and green spotlights, up into the, aisle, up into the balcony, and over here into the loges, and the bottom here into the theater pit. And this entire mass of screaming, waving, insane, wild human beings, you couldn't, you couldn't even rel- relate to it as human beings. It was like you were looking at some kind of swarm of beetles or gnats or some kind of an insane wasp nest that's been stirred up and then the final night happened. It had to happen. Even the Beatles themselves had never seen anything like this. We were playing a town called Leeds. Now Leeds is, a, is an industrial city, just an ordinary kind of place. It's like Gary, Indiana, as a matter of fact, or like, uh, like Union City, you know, there's a lot of factories and refineries, sort of a tough, nothing city in England, an ancient one, but very nothing. And nobody was expecting what happened. It just came out of, the, out, of the, out of the combustion. The Beatles were on stage, and the waves were coming up, screaming, screaming, just roaring up, one after the other. And it was getting higher and higher. And the man standing next to me was their road manager. He'd heard thousands of these. And he said to me, he says, this, this doesn't sound right. He said, this doesn't sound right. And he called two of the stagehands. He says, get over back here. Something's going to happen. He said, it sounds funny. And sure enough, it did. It was getting more and more. It was coming in wave after wave and quicker and quicker. And suddenly, without any warning, it was like a big wave coming right out of the ocean. It broke right over the parapet, and there were about 50 girls on stage. It just
2: went, Bloom!
1: and the Beatles, uh, you know, they staggered back, their little zippers popping, you know. And the Beatles, by the way, are all about four feet three, you know, they and he's, he's, this great wave of girls all poured up on the stage, and it was a fantastic melee, and the, the stagehands, constables, and me, by the way, we all rushed out, and big scream for us, you know, part of the show. And what do you think the girls were doing? It was unbelievable. The girls were tearing off their clothes, not the Beatles, but theirs literally tearing their clothes off on the stage. There must have been 50 of them. Well, here they are, throwing these chicks back like footballs into the crowd, you know. And they were all about eight years old, you know, nine years old. You grab one and whoop, or bloomers are flying, you know. And the rest of the crowd goes, whoa, and we're throwing them back. One of them had crawled under the stage how she got under nobody knows. Under the stage, and she came out of the wings like a shotgun shot. Just boom! She hit out there like a little bowling ball. She rolled three times and knocked Ringo's drums over. And as she rolled, you could see her peeling. You know, just wildly peeling. Ringo grabbed her by the neck and pushed her down. Get away from me! <laughs> and she let go a fantastic. Ah! And Ringo says, pull the curtain down, man. And boom, down it came. And the Beatles were trapped with seven naked five-year-olds.
2: <coughs>
1: what a moment, I'll tell you. A great moment in the English theater. <coughs> well, well, I, I, I'll i tell you, I, I, they're throwing the kids off the ball. And, of course, that ended the show for that night. And the next day, the press blamed the Beatles. The press said the Beatles once again have, have caused violence to strike our small city here. And I'm thinking of all those parents at home with little girls named Agatha. You know, little skinny girls eating oatmeal. And the mother says, did you enjoy the Beatles last night? She says, yes, Mommy, and I can only see a picture of little Agatha flying through the air, trailing her pants <laughs> behind <laughs> No, I, I suspect, you know, I, and I began to have a real understanding of what this is all about. It has nothing to do with rock and roll. And I'm curious, and, and you know, the Beatles often talk about this. Uh, in fact, the Beatle manager, a couple of them, uh, this is a subject that always comes up. Is I wonder what the next act is gonna be like (laughs) well already they're beginning to pop out there's one (laughs) there's one in England that that comes out on the stage and there are four guys and they wear their hair down to their waist and it's all in a bouffant hairdo that goes trailing on down have you ever heard of that group they wear pink sweaters and they wear these tight stretch pants that girls wear. You know, these little things that girls wear, and they come out with high heels. Oh, yeah, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. They're the biggest new thing in England. Now, I can't tell you what the audience does with that crew <laughs> because we have women and children listening to us. But I saw them work in London, and you cannot believe it. First of all, their audience isn't really little girls; it's something else.
2: <laughs> well,
1: in a manner of speaking, they're not little girls. It's a very difficult thing, this culture business, you know. <laughs> and when you when you when you get over and you get close to get close to the underbelly of all this that's going on, you wonder just really in what direction. The third day I was there, prompted came out with an editorial, and they had a picture of a riot that had occurred in one of the English cities over the Beatles, and it translated said, another example of Western decadence. (laughs) And everybody says, oh, what is this stuff, you know, what, and I well, is it or isn't it? Are they telling the truth or are they not? Let me tell you of the night. Do you want to hear about the nightclub that I went into? It's the innest, hippest English nightclub and the, the the number one guest that night was Mandy Rice Davies <laughs> oh yeah she was she was the number one exhibit that night and I sat down next to this girl it was a dark place and the rock and roll is coming out and it's it's wild it's just a scene like twisting writhing bodies and the music is just booming out and I'm an American you know we're used to you know the, the limelight how innocent you know and I come in there and I sit down look around and the guy next to me says, "Would you like to meet Christine Keeler?" I says, be Christine, grapes on the toga, and you're in business."
2: <laughs>
1: oh yeah, yeah. You know decadence. I, I think that that one. Of, oh, hey, we're on the air again. Come on, let's give let's give Ohio a big hand, crowd. Hey, hey. listen, you. You just don't know how it feels to have to live in Circleville. You people just go through, I mean, you know, some guys never leave Canton, Ohio. No wonder they think New York is a plot against them, <laughs> which it really is in a way, you know. But uh, speaking of plots, we're back here at the at the limelight in the hearty, reliable Greenwich Village, a Fleischman's yeast cake of passion here. <laughs> and... Uh, Yes, it's fermenting. I can feel it. We'll be here. We'll be here until about uh, midnight or so. And if you're casting around for a cheapy place, we're here.
2: <laughs> you know, speaking
1: of cheapy places, one of the great things about about traveling, I mean really traveling. By traveling, I mean getting getting out of the tourist rut, really traveling, is it does the same thing to the traveler that being in the army does to the soldier. It gives you a sense of anonymity and a sense of irresponsibility. I'm curious how many people who are very hip back here in the States who would never think of taking a picture of a statue in Central Park. All of a sudden, their basic slobism comes out in London. They just walk around, you know. <laughs> you, know you can be a slob. Nobody can see, you know. You, Even if you're a village voice writer, you can be a real (laughs) slob in Greece, you know. Nobody's going to see you there, you know. And, and, and of course, it it holds in all kinds of areas. Now, back home, I don't go to nightclubs. It just doesn't interest me much. Well, I'm in London. I'm there about the second or third day. And one of the Beatles says to me, he says, say, have you ever been to the Whoopi Club? Well, I'm giving it a a, a name. It's it's a different name, by the way, than this. So this is an artificial name I've given it. So I says, no. He says, well, man, if you want to to really see something, go to a whooping club with me. I said, fine, all right. And so that night, long after everything had been put away, are you aware that in in New York City, now wait, I'm going to let you in on something, people, that right here in New York City, there are little cells of inness, little places where the really in people, and they're, they're allowed in because they are in, you know. I don't know how to express it. It's just they're in, you know. These are the people who go through life and never pay for anything. The whole world is on an expense account as far as they're concerned. They even charge dying to the diners club when they die. They deduct it. These are people who never pay for a a blessed thing in their lives, and they're the true ends. You might call them the borderline celebrities. In fact, they're even more celebrities than celebrities because, you know, a real celebrity has to do something. Uh, You know, uh, an actor has to work and be an actor to become a celebrity. He's a working man, in short. A painter has to paint to be in. But there is a special kind of celebrity who is above all of that sort of thing. And they're truly in. And all over the city of New York, there are these little rooms, little dark rooms. They're called this club, and they're called that club. They're never mentioned in columns, by the way. They're that in. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, you have these little gatherings. You know, all those people that appear on the Johnny Carson show. And you sit in there, yeah, all the official people, you know. Oh yeah, it's great. You know, you get, you, get, you can't believe it. Jozsef Gabor, they're all there, you know. And so, when you get into one of these places, you're actually admitted. You feel like somehow that there is something in this business of heaven. That some people are admitted to some things and others aren't, and that we're all always before the great bar of justice. Now. The beautiful thing about most people is that they don't, they're not even aware that there is an in. These are the true out, you know, they're just... They're all looking at me dumbly like I'm inventing this, you see, this is the great lumpen proletariat. And the guys that are in have the most fantastic disdain for that lumpen proletariat out there, that great population made of cream of wheat. You know, the people that they run over with their Alfa Romeos, you know, that kind of,
2: you
1: know. Oh, yeah, I'm serious. There is, a, there is a real aristocracy in this world, and they have the complete disdain for those out there. And that includes everything morally, you see, that the morality that the lumpen proletariat obides and lives by, that is a sign of outness, literally, and that the more you, you behave in the accepted pattern of behavior— the less likely you are to ever be admitted in. Now, I suspect that if Nero was around, Nero would have five of these little establishments going. They, as a matter of fact, have existed all through history. All through history. And usually most of the people in a civilization are totally unaware of this. It's just they don't even know that it's there. And yet these people are a kind of leader. Because after you've been to a few of them, you recognize that what is going on in here is what will be going on out there five years from now. But what will be going on in here then is unimaginable, (laughs) totally unimaginable. And so one of the Beatles says, why don't you come to the Whoopi Club? (laughs) All right, says the Whoopie Club, and he says the Whoopie Club, and I, you know, immediately I think of something like with girls dancing, you know, and cigarettes and all that stuff, you know, the hat check girl and you know the whole bit. See, I'm really a looping proletariat. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't, you know, on the radio yet on the John Gambling Station.
2: Gee.
1: <laughs> So, so I, I, I said, yeah, you know, I'm sure, you know, I'll go there. And he says, well, it's quite a, quite a thing, you know. So that night, the show is over. We finish our work. The Beatles have finished making $8 million. I have finished observing them. Everything is settling back now to a normal thing. And, of course, in a city like London a beetle can get around with comparative ease because, you know, it's a fantastically big city and all the men have got their hair like this. So, you know, it's just another one of the goops, that's all. (laughs) And so we are sitting in the back seat of a cab, me and this beetle. We're going, going, we go up and down little side streets and I figure, where are we going? You know, what is the side? Because I keep thinking in terms of, you know, uh, the Great White Way, Broadway, the Copa and all, the Latin Quarter. And he says, the What We Club. And when he said, the whoopee club, to the guy who was driving the cab, I noticed a very peculiar thing. The cab driver gave a sudden quick look back. He says, aye. And he sort of scrunched down. (laughs) He didn't know who he was with, and he wasn't taking any chances. (laughs) He just knew about the whoopee club. That's all, you know. It's legendary, so... I didn't know until, you know, year after a week, but I saw immediately, so up and down the side streets we go. You know, London streets at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning have a certain mausoleum quality about it. It's a very spooky city. To me, London is the most foreign of all cities. I say this to you as an American, because you're constantly under the impression you can talk their language. You really—you're always under the illusion contact, and it never quite works, and you wonder why. You keep feeling that everything is a little out of focus, and you're always on the verge of a fistfight. And, and either they're going to hit you—you you sense there's a certain stretching of the muscles there—or else you feel, like well, what do you mean?" You know, you want to go out and grab him. You don't get that feeling in Holland, because in Holland they just go, oh, yeah, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah," and then you pay. You know, everything's fine, no problem. Works out great, you know, and wherever you go like that. But in England, you keep... You know what I'm doing to this day now? It's funny. When you walk around England and everything in the windows, you know, there's prices on it. It always says 3106D or some little funny thing like that. (laughs) You automatically divide everything you see or multiply it by three or divide by three or something. And you look there and you say, oh, that's $7. That's not bad. $7 for a Rolls Royce. And, and you, you know, and you walk in there and it turns, you know, you, you can't quite figure out. Now today, now I'll walk around and I'm looking in the Bond clothing store and I'm translating it into pounds to figure out whether I'm getting taken or not. So you get this funny sense of, of, of the enigmatic in England. It's a very enigmatic country. You, you have the feeling that they're sweeping an awful lot of stuff under the carpets. But you can't find the carpet. (laughs) You know, you just have this sense, like you'll meet some very important man, like he's the head of uh, the God Department. You know, you meet him, see, and he's he's Sir Malcolm something. And you sit down with him, and you note that his collar is dirty. (laughs) You know, this is a little, and not only dirty, it's very worn around the back. And you don't know what to say, you know, and, and. and, and whether he's a slot. <laughs> and he speaks in this beautiful oxonian fantastic language and all the while he keeps spilling soup on his pants very peculiar you know you're always trying to put it in focus and, 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 and all the while he is saying of course you know this is the, the, one thing about the they're certainly is such boors
2: <laughs>
1: you don't quite know what to say you know where does boorishness stop and a bad set of false teeth begin? <laughs> well, we're, we're wa- you know, I'm walking through the streets and finally we get to this corner and he stops the car. And it looks like a closed block of office buildings. You know, it's like if somebody at 3 in the morning took you down to Wall Street. Everything's closed. There's nothing on the streets at all. Darkness. Boy, when those... When those London streets go, when they turn them off, man, it's like somebody has turned off a switch somewhere and everything is off. The sound is off. They've turned the sky off. The the clouds have been turned off and everything. There's kind of a fog settling in, see. And you can hear things echoing. And my little beetle friend, you know, his turtleneck all pulled up. He's walking ahead of me like this. You know, I'm sort of running behind him. See, this is a, I figure as long as I'm sticking with the beetle, it's all right. You know, at least we can hear, oh, I'm a beetle, and the town will turn on, you know. <laughs> so, so I'm running behind this guy, and we, we get to a, a, a doorway in the side of a building. He opens it up, and there's a light in there. I go in with him. And at the other end of the corridor is one of these automatic elevators for going up into what appears to be B, B, D, and I mean, serious. it looks exactly like an office building. You know, the kind up here in Manhattan, you know, with all the, about 25 stainless steel elevators that says sign in and all that stuff. And here's an old man sitting there, and I walk
2: in and I say, what, what is the scene? You know,
1: he says, you'll follow me. And the little man says, all right, will you please sign in? So the Beatle writes down, Beatle.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so...
1: I don't know whether to write down my real name or, my, or the name I always use when I'm traveling, Charles Follins B. Apperson. <laughs> Never know, you know. So I write C. L. Apperson, and he says, all right, we stand there, presses the button, you know, the one that says up, and presses and wait. Little red light goes on, the doors, and I am standing in a stainless steel elevator with a beat. Doors close. We stand. This is the damnedest night out I've ever had. <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for the whoopee sounds. I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the sounds of a cigarette girl or somebody grabbing my coat and wanting a buck or something. You know, we get up to the top of this building. We go about maybe five or six stories, just goes zzzz, and it goes. Oomk, opens like that. We step out in a total, absolute stygian darkness. Complete. I mean, it's like there isn't a light in a thousand miles. And there's a man just sitting there on a three legged stool watching.
2: <laughs>
1: just looks at us. He is there, you see, to keep the outs out. Once in a while, one arrives, you know, with a bucket and wants to sweep up or something, you know, and they just throw him out. So he just looks at it and he immediately sees it's a beetle. And he goes, hey. And he says, beetle. Oh. And he says, okay. So we go in through another doorway, and we're now in. Well, how can I describe it to you? Is there any Dante house here? <laughs> I am serious. I am in a scene of unmitigated profligacy. It is. It is passion unbridled, in the darkness, and from loudspeakers all the way around the walls, you hear this just deafening sound of rock and roll. It's just going And I'm jumping, you know, like this, and this beetle just walks ahead like that. He's, and you hear in the crowd, I, be, oh I, beetle. oh He's, I, 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 I. And Back we go all the way through this room and the writhing bodies twisting and screaming, the hoopla and the uproar. And one after the other, you could see people peeling off. And finally, the Beatles said, sit down here. And I sit. well, I immediately recognized that this was not a meeting of Little Orphan Annie's secret <laughs> circle. That my magic decoder pin was not going to decode this. There were a lot of messages that didn't have anything to do with me going on. And sitting directly in front of me is a chick. See? Well, you know, I'm Charlie Apperson. See, I figure I can make the scene pretty good here now. You know how Americans are, we're all in this, so I'm gonna be part of it. And there's a chick sitting in front of me there. The darkness is getting darker. And they bring me a drink of some strange elixir. You know that the inn people don't drink stuff like you're drinking. I don't know what they made it out of, but I had three eyes instantly. They use some strange Mexican root, which is so esoteric and so evil that they haven't even yet made laws to keep it out. They don't want to... (laughs) They don't even want the father is such a thing. And they mix it with Coke. So they shove one of these in my hands and my eyes are immediately adjusting. I got three eyes moving around like this, you know, search lights, my ears are singing. And I see this chick ahead of me, and I belt her between the shoulder blades. I say, hi, baby. Well, the chick turns around and gives me a look of sheer solid hatred and turns back to the crowd. I say, well, take another slug of this strange drink. Passion is flowing through my veins like a deep, rich river now. This compost heap of of live emotions, me, is beginning to pulsate, I say, hey, baby, and she turns to me and says, excuse me, my name is Chuck, (laughs) now, wait a minute, are you applauding Chuck, (laughs) or the fantastic boo-boo I made, (laughs) I said, oh, hi, Chuck.
2: <laughs>
1: I, there, you know. I, I you know, I reckon, and here, here, here is Chuck sitting ahead of me there, and he's talking to a real chick, and they're discussing their hairdresser. Well, I, I sat there for about three minutes trying to get my bearings. You know, have you ever had this feeling of, of being suddenly thrown into... A dark swimming pool And you don't know which way you're going It's like waking up at 3 in the morning You don't know which, You know that feeling of, of waking up at 3 in the morning in bed And you don't know which way you're turned You can't figure out which way is the bathroom You know, or anything So you're <laughs> laying there You say, so what am I doing this way, you know You're looking around you know, you're And here you're actually lying right You know, you wake up and you, you turn out what, what happened Well, this is the sense I was having in the whoopee club I didn't know what to say to anybody, because I didn't know what the language was. But all I knew was that I was definitely a spy. I was from the outside world, and they didn't quite know it yet, because I had come in with a beetle. Well, I sat for about 20 minutes, trying to get my bearings, and all the seats were low. You know these seats that you see in, in Roman orgies? They're just low, long, flat things around the wall, not real seats. So if you want to sit on somebody or put your feet on somebody's ears or anything, everybody's all lying around like this, you know, on each other and all tangled, a twisted mass, and somebody kept pulling my leg (laughs) trying to get me into it, you know. It's just all out there in front of me, just twisting and turning like so. And I, I, I stayed there for about 10 minutes on the edge of this thing, and they're hugging at my feet and hitting at me, and finally the beetle comes up for air. He surfaces briefly, and he says, "Hi, Gene, why don't you get in and join the fun? (laughs) What do you do? Just come in. It's all right. The water's warm. Well, I plunged in. Now, I want to tell you what happened. I literally did. I plunged right into the darkness. I stepped out of the little circle. They had little tiny lights where you could see the seats. And I stepped into the arena. And from ceiling, they had ceiling speakers. Oh, fantastic, about the size of those great big squares up there, over the entire assemblage. It was a pit, sort of hung down inside. And over the assemblage were these loudspeakers, not more than a foot and a half over your head, turned up a 1,000 dBs above S9 rock and roll. Physically, you want to you know, just pound and you. Boom, boom, boom. It's going, you hear the sound of beetles screaming and I get down in the middle of this mess and they're twisting in the darkness. I can just see this wild thing so I go off into it. You know, I start twisting. <laughs> I, I move it back. You know, it's not, they're not dancing. Remember that. They're not, I shouldn't use the term twist because you think in terms of dancing. It was just a strange gyration that everybody was doing in the darkness. They'd bump into each other. They'd move off. Once in a while, you'd step on somebody. They'd squish. you would know, move off. <laughs> you could hear... You could hear squeals of laughter, you know, out of the dark. Whee! You know, and I had a figure... I had a feeling this was only the prelude. I had a sense that this was the opening movement of this party, whatever it is. And we, we went round and round, and then suddenly... They turned off the PA. Just boom, like that. This is a signal for everybody to go back and have more gentian root.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> or sassafras tea or whatever that stuff was, which they sold for five pounds a clip. And so I go staggering back and I sit down there and immediately out of the darkness they're handing these things out again. I've got another one, you see. And the, and the first one is now turning my feet to stone. You know that funny feeling of of you're you're beginning to fall asleep from the foot up, and it's working its way up to my knees now, you see? And the top of my head, I can hear little things going ding, 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 little bells ringing. Well, I take one sip of this, and I know, man, I know I had better get out there on that dark street quick. Because one more sip, and Shepherd ain't coming home. I knew that I would not be on the air any and pulled into that maw of human debauchery, never to return. In fact, they tell me that there are many American celebrities, you know people, you, have you often said to yourself, I wonder what happened to uh, Charlie Brown? <laughs> He's out there in the darkness somewhere, it's insane, you know, and you, you, you come away, Speaking of insanity and passion pits, what station is this, friends? Come on, let's hear it. Yes, the John What station? Hey, let's give the Westport School announcements a big hand. Right, George. Well, I I I was I was I was kind of stunned for a minute. And I sipped a little bit of my drink. And sitting next to me was Mandy Rice Davies. I'm telling you, so help me, I'm raising my hand. It was Mandy Rice Davies. Now, what do you say to Mandy Rice Davies?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you say I've uh, admired your work? You know? you know, like I've been a fan for years. <laughs> I, you know, she's sitting right there. You know, she has this, this beautiful English range, got a Cockney accent, and I said, uh, I said, I'm an American. She says, yes, I know. <laughs> Apparently, Americans are no fun in that department. <laughs> so, so, you know, there was a kind of a cool moment there, and I said, uh, nice club. <laughs> you know, what do you say? You know? And she just turned to me, stone-cold look, and it swept through the crowd. An outsider was in. I knew it. The beetle came back and sat next to me, and he said, how you enjoying the club? And just as he said that, the music started again, and they melted into the darkness, and I was alone. I watched for about two minutes this moiling mass in the darkness, the screams and the yelling, the great roar of the rock and roll, and of the giggles. And you could hear the sound of grapes being stepped on. Somewhere a violin was being played. Nero was on the scene. You know, you expected to see any minute guys with, with cloven hoofs running through <laughs> little horns, you know, with fur pants on. Well, this, this went on for about five minutes, and I knew I had to go because it was going to be a stain on my soul I could never erase. And I walked to the door. And standing in the doorway was the guy. You know, you don't pay when you go in. You pay when you go out. <laughs> Apparently, there's a lot of people who are holdovers in there. <laughs> this is... <laughs> if you want to come, you can stay... Two weeks, you know, if you want to. And, and, and I, 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 I walk up to him, and he says, He says, uh, he says uh, are you a member? And I said, uh, I'm with the Beatle. I, I I, I, you coming back tomorrow, huh, are you?
2: I said, yes. <laughs>
1: and i go into that little stainless steel elevator all by myself the doors close silence you know that hermetically sealed feeling you get in these automatic elevators and as i went down every foot i went down it became less real it stopped it went there i am in the lobby there's a little old man sitting there with the... He says, sign out, please. So I go over and I write to 416. My shaky hand and it's all swirling around me. My eyes are still bulging and my feet are still... That numb feeling, they're asleep. I get back out on the street and there's a single girl. I'm going to tell you a, a wild scene. This, this is exactly what happened. There's a tall, thin, beautiful girl standing under the streetlight. Now, you you, you really see people in England at four in the morning. They really stand out, and she's standing under the streetlight. I came back out. Boy, the air, it's silent. Back of me is an office building that looks as innocent as Young and Rubicam does tonight. It does, you know. It's just a solid office building with the stainless steel front... And the girl comes, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Don't tell me this now on top of everything else, you know. She comes up, and she says, excuse me, please. Were you in the whoopee club? I thought, "Uh uh-oh, am I going to get busted? I mean, is this fuzz or what? You know, that instant feeling, fuzz. And I said, yes. She said, would you please take me in? I said, take you into the whoopee club? yes, I've heard about it. I've heard that it's so much fun. I said, well, I'm not a member. I was just taken in as a guest. She says, oh, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. I said, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) You know, I began to feel like a real debauched, rotten person. I'd I'd been to hell and back, you know. I walk out, I hail a cab, and I get in the back of the cab, and we went about five blocks, and the guy turns to me, and he says, he says, were you at the whoopee Club? I says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to make of it? He says, I had Mandy Rice Davies in my cab. I say, oh, you're a lucky man. He says, Yeah. And we'd rode through the quiet, still darkness of London, past Buckingham Palace, past those great ancient eating clubs, and finally back to my little pad. And I wondered about what side of England this is. What part of it is? Who is in the darkness out there? You know, right now, at this very moment, right here in America, right here, I'd say within about... Three miles of where we are, I would say that there are maybe anywhere from two to five cells just like that. Going on. Would you like to go, gang? Crazy. Would you like an invitation? Yeah. Well, you know they don't you uh. You notice her husband doesn't say anything.
2: <laughs>
1: you know they don't honor diner club cards there. And and carte blanche, they don't honor. But you know the funny feeling of of being out and suddenly being in is both a good feeling and a very scary feeling. And I had a sensation like that once in the Army, in case you're interested. Somebody wanted to hear an Army story, well I'll tell you a funny one. Uh, This is part of the Army life that's never recorded. It's the sense of being out when you're in the Army. And all the other guys in the Army seem to be in. And you're just there you got a funny suit on when you're first in You're you know you're walking around and I am a ping pong player I love to play ping pong are there any ping pong players in this crowd well I happen to be a left-handed ping pong player and in the army particularly in the Army Signal Corps ping pong is a way of life and you can hear the sound at two o'clock in the morning guys whiling away their lives in the day room you just hear tink tong tink 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 tong tink tong tink 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 tong tong then there's a pause tink tong tink tink tong that's the army you see do you know that some guys some staff sergeants i knew got three consecutive raises in ranks without ever giving up their paddle they just played all day long. They'd come in, they'd say, you're a staff now, and they'd put another badge, ding-dong, ding. That's cadre, you see. And cadre gets very good at playing all the games that the, that the guys who aren't cadre never get a chance to get near. Well, I had one brief moment when I was cadre. Now, how many of you guys know, all, all you guys have been in the Army, you know what cadre means. That's permanent party. For those of you who are not in the Army, have you ever had the feeling in your life that there are people who are there permanently?
2: <laughs>
1: in the office where you work, the real people, you know, you're just there until they catch up with you.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's that's cadre. They're there, you see. And, and I'm assigned to this Army camp, and they make me cadre. I've got a patch, and that means now I'm issued my ping-pong paddle. I can play ping-pong. So... I'm a left-handed ping pong player. And so I'm working you know, by the way, this gives you a fantastic advantage over ordinary ping pong players. And and it gives you the illusion that you're a good ping pong player. And so I'm playing and I began to develop into the best ping pong player. I'm you're looking right now, seriously. You're looking at the best ping pong player that Company K of the eight hundred and third ever turned out. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Backhand, forehand, I had a down pat. And the one guy I played with, you see, all ping pong players have a favorite adversary. Well, Gasser was my adversary. Gasser was six feet nine. He was from California, and he was a right-handed ping pong player. Well, you see, it's like it's like a giraffe fighting a mouse. And I could beat Gasser. It was nip and tuck, but it was always twenty-one eighteen. Gasser, ooh. Yeah walk around, I, that snotty little thing, you know, the little tip over the net, and I'd, I'd hang him in the corners all over you. That, that, you know that, that great sense of power you get when it's going away and you go, thing, and it goes, shoom, boing, and then there's, oh, all right, let's go, who oh, serve? And you stand back there and move and see, and I'm getting better and better and better as I played. One solid year in the day room, <laughs> I went from T5 to staff. In the day room playing ping-pong and I got better and better and better until finally there was no competition just me and Gasser and we put on these these we put on these demonstrations you know how long can we volley and so we would volley through an entire basic training cycle you know like this you know this kind of thing watch this Gasser you know zing ding ding Gasser ding you know, we're playing and the people would come and watch us, you know we're fantastic well finally the day came When Gasser and I were shipped, and we've got our bags packed, I've got my paddle stuck down there with my mess kit, got a set of extra balls, you know, I'm a real, because you never know where you're going to get shipped. It might be real hell there, you never know, you know. So I've got my equipment, and we get shipped up to Fort Monmouth. Well, now, we didn't realize that we were in the world of the real city slicker. And by now, you know, Gasser and I figure we've got the whole scene pegged. We've been in the Army a couple of years, you know. We're real solid types, real GIs. And the third week we're here, we get our first weekend pass. Well, I had never seen New York. Gasser had never seen anything bigger than Whittier, California. Do you know, any of you, because you're all Easterners, do any of you know, I'll bet you never will know the thrill, is only a thrill that will be felt by somebody who comes from way out there in the darkness, on the other side of the Hackensack River, out there past the last Howard Johnson on the turnpike, to whom New York has only been a myth. It's like Oz or the Emerald City. Well, here I am for the first time in my life in New York, and I'll never forget the sight. I could not believe a city could look like this. Incredible. It's intoxicating. Very. It's unbelievably beautiful. And Gasser and I are walking along 23rd Street marveling.
2: <laughs>
1: we haven't even seen the city yet. It's 23rd Street that's knocking us out, you know.
2: <laughs>
1: and, and we finally get uptown and we go through Times Square and my. You know, there it is, you can't believe it. The buildings, everything stretching, the Empire State Building all the way to the sky. And we're drifting around. We've got about oh, you know, we had we had at least two months pay in our pockets. Big fat wallets. That's a that's a great thing about being in the army, too, you know. There's money is for one thing to squirt. <laughs> you don't think of tomorrow. Let me tell you, you know, you got this big that wallet, you know, you got it. You got, you got gonna pass a three-day pass. You're absolutely anonymous. You feel like you're a, you're a thousand feet tall. Well, Gasser and I are walking up and down Times Square. We stop at the Stage Door Canteen. Do you remember that one? Well, we go down to the Stage Door Canteen. They give us a sandwich. You know, we'd seen the movie about this, and and we felt like we were intruders. You know, we went down there and they give us a little sandwich and a hot dog. And, even to this day, when I walk past that street, do you know that in the 40s, right off of Broadway, there's a plaque on the side of a building, and it says, In this building was a historic stage door canteen during World War II. Well, one of the very few times I ever felt like I was really in the Army, you know the kind of Army you see in the movies with Van Johnson and all that? was the night that I sat down in the stage door canteen. And this little guy is serving. You know, they had civilian volunteers from the theater would serve. And that night, this guy comes up to me, and he sits down. You know, he's going to be good to the GI. And I said, uh, I. He says, uh, do you like the army? I said, eh, you know. What do you say to a 4F, you know? He says,
2: uh, "Do you like the army?" I says, eh, you,
1: know. Right, "You know, I've been in the army long enough now. You don't even say you don't like it or you like it. It's just your life. You know, do you like your life, friends?
2: <laughs> you know."
1: So I'm sitting there, and I said, "Well, what do you do?" And he says, "Oh, I'm an actor." I says, "An actor? You know, in Hammond, Indiana, they don't see actors." You know? I thought, "Oh, <laughs> here's a bonus bologna." He says, "I'm an actor." He's about this high. Says, he says, "I'm an actor." I says what What do you What do you do Where Where do you act? He says Well, I make movies. I says You make movies, but well, you know immediately this means real acting to Hammond, You know, I said, movies. What? I, immediately, I'm thinking of Johnny Weissmuller pictures and Priscilla Lane. And he says, Well, I just finished a movie called Laura. I never heard of it. You see, it was new movie. I never heard of it. He says movie called Laura. I never heard of it. I think I'm putting them down. See he says well I don't know whether it's going to do anything it's just a pot boiler it's kind of a mystery I said Laura what's your name he says Dana Andrews I said, "Oh, come on I never heard of you and we're we're sitting there and that was the kind of evening it was back and forth a kind of strange unreality and gassers sitting across the room talking to the singing lady (laughs) believe it or not he got hooked with the singing lady was entertaining him and so five minutes later we're back out on the street Here it is now, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, two GIs in town, the first time in New York. And we are up on Broadway in the early 50s. Can you imagine that area there now? There's a lot of car dealers there in that area there. And above those car dealers, they had bowling alleys. One after the other were bowling alleys. And Gasser looks up and he says, You want to bowl? I said, ah, you know, I want to bowl. All night long they bowled in those days, you know, as a swing shift and stuff. And one of the windows had a sign. It said, table tennis. <laughs> Little did we realize we were about to meet our fate. <laughs> we were about to be shucked. Gasser says, let's go up and give them a lesson. So I says, okay, Gasser. And so up those long, winding, dark stairways we go. And you know, there's pool millions of pool tables and there's about 25 bowling alleys and over in the corner there are three ping pong tables and they were beautiful tables magnificent tables not like the day room you know with the lumps all over it so Gasser and I walk over and a couple of kids are just sort of playing casually you know just pinging back and forth there were two empty tables and Gasser calls the pin boy or whatever he was over and says how about a couple of paddles here the guy says, well, it's 25 cents a game. guess says, that's nothing. He takes out his wallet, plunks a $5 bill. He says, let's go. All right, chap. He says, what do you, what do you want? Do you want the light side of the table or the dark side? We flip. You know, a couple of old ace ping pong players. So we get in a position. I get the ball. It's a real New York City ball. You know, the real big time. So I, Bing. You know, I start to the serve. Bing. And immediately, you know, we're hitting him with authority. That solid authority of feeling... Free, no scare, no worry. You're on top of your game. Bing. The beautiful lights, boom, bing. And immediately these two kids look over, you know. One of them says, wow, you guys sure can play. Gas says, Oh, it's nothing. Watch this. Gas with the right hand something. I Dong. you know. Shepherd goes, thing, you know, boing. <laughs> We're banging, you know, like back and forth, and we play a game. Shepard wins 21-18. Gasser says, okay, I serve, let's go. By this time, there's about 10 guys standing around watching. Gasser and Shepard are playing a a Minnesota Fats-type game. (laughs) You know, we're really playing it big. And and outside, you can hear the traffic of Broadway. It's the big town. It's everything. We're all, you know, there's a kind of delirium that enters into it. And one of the kids keeps watching. And finally, after about five brilliantly fought games, the kid says, can I play one of you guys? Gasser, six feet, nine, says, all right, all right, well, which one do you want to play? He says, all right, I'll take that one, me, Shepard. So Shepherd says, all right, well, okay, kid. Of course, by this time, you know, I'm, I'm, remember, I'm a GI, I'm bronzed, I got a flat gut, I got stripes all over, you know, and my sleeves are rolled up, and I'm sweating. I'm really full of it all, you know. So I says, okay, you go ahead and serve, kid. So he goes, bing. Flying. He goes flying. Bing. She's the worst player I've played since the guy in the day room who was O.D., you know, bing. It's a Shepard, flying like this. All right, go ahead. I'll tell you what. I'll give you a five handicap, okay, kid? He says, thanks. So we play. Shepard murders And so then we play another game. Shepard murders him even worse. And then he says, can I play the tall guy? And Gasser says, all right, sure. I'll give you five handicap. So Gasser beats him twice. And then the other kid says, can I play? He is even skinnier and littler. Gasser says, all right, I'll take you on, kid. And Gasser beats him. By this time, I could see guys drifting away from the bowling alley. They're getting closer, closer, closer. And then that little, that little snot says, how about putting a buck on the game? Oh, this is silly, you know. All right, so we put the buck out there. Gasser wins the kid's buck. So then he says, let me play the other guy. So I win a buck from him. I win three bucks from him. Gasser wins six bucks from him. And finally, the kid says, gee, you guys sure can play. We had him pegged for a a rotten, rich kid. You know what a rotten, rich kid is, the Princeton type? So the kid says, listen. He's gasping. He says, listen, I'm a good ping pong player. I don't know what you guys are doing to the ball, but I can beat you. And Gassus says, oh, yeah? The kid says, yeah. You want to bet everything in your pocket against everything in my pocket? Gasser says, yeah. And the other kid says, oh, yeah. Wise guys, you're doing something to the ball. I'll bet everything in my pocket that he can beat you. So I says, oh, yeah. Gasser and I got it all out there, you know, and we're laying it out. Everything, my pass, the whole bit, you know. I says, all right, wise guy, which one do you want to take? The kid says, you all right okay gasser gasser steps off shepherd goes thing my best serve my my back forehand slice ding dong boing and the kid goes <laughs> let me tell you there was a silence in that bowling alley you could have cut with a knife jaime has got another one on the hook <laughs> Well, let me tell you, I figured, you know, it's one of them flukes. I got another serve, so Shepard goes, bang, and I get it in the mouth. That came back, throing, in the face like that. I says, Gasser, give me your paddle. He gives me his paddle. Well, it was a nightmare. That guy took me apart and put me together again with ribbons. He took me apart again and then put me together again with airplane glue. Then he shredded me sideways, <laughs> then he put mayonnaise on top of me, <laughs> salt and pepper, and I'm laying there, you know, every time I could, I couldn't even touch it. It's the first time in my life, I couldn't, I, I figured they put holes in the paddles, I can't even touch them, it's going ding, ding, and when he served, oh, I don't know whether any of you have ever played a really good ping pong player. I am standing there waiting, you know, and I keep edging back, and says, play him deep. Play him deep Lay him deep And I'm about 30 feet back at the table And this guy lays one right in the strike zone And it stops It goes <laughs> He says, love, 10 <laughs> All right, hit him So you want me to hit one? <laughs> and my paddle goes off I got nothing but the handle in my hand well it was like that all the way through i scored one point the game finally ended 21-1 these two kids grabbed the money and disappeared into the crowd and there we stood gasser and i shorn our bones shining through you know, you know, you want to say something like, well, fellas, it's the service. We're in the army. You know? And about six guys with short cigars go back to their pool game, you know. No more interest in us. Our wallets are flat. And the two of us go back down those stairways and out into Broadway. We're walking towards the Y. Thank God we had paid for a room at the Y, 40 cents. We're walking all the way to 23rd Street in the Y, and we're walking through Times Square. Not a word is said until we get down to about 34th Street. And Gasser says, this is sure a big town. (laughs) It sure is, Gasser. We now approach 23rd Street, and Gasser finally says it. He says, listen. If you don't say anything about it back in the company, I won't either. (laughs) I say, shake, Gasser. And we both shook hands at the corner of 7th Avenue and 23rd Street, never to mention it in the company. And two days later, we're back in the company K-Day room out at Monmouth, killing all the corporals bigger than we'd ever been before because we had learned humility. (laughs) We had learned that there is more to it than meets the eye. And I want to say one little postscript to the scene. I was out of the Army. It was about oh, it must have been eight or nine years later when I got a long distance call. Now, I, I rarely get long distance calls from California. And there's a long distance call and I pick it up and the operator says, Is this Mr. Shepherd? And I said, Yes. She says, This Corporal Shepherd? Uh. Corporal Shepherd? Are they calling me back or what? You know? <laughs> That's that sick feeling, you know. Yeah. You get your gut, you know, this is a CO, what are you doing in Hammond? You know? I I said, Yes. And then I hear this voice. Hey Shep, it's Gasser. I say, Gasser for crying out loud, what are you doing? He says, Nothing. What are you doing? I said, nothing, what are you doing? He said, nothing, what are you doing? It's two old buddies meeting, see. And then there was a brief pause in the cycle, and he says, do you remember that ping pong game in New York? I say, yeah, Gasser. He said, you haven't said anything about it to anybody, have you? I said, no, why? He says, I'm California champ. I said, Gasser, I know where there's a guy... On Broadway, that can take you apart. <laughs> he says, Don't mention it. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, it was not more than about, oh, five years ago that I saw Gasser's picture in Sports Illustrated. And I keep remembering down there, you know, I walk around this town and I go past those buildings on Broadway where the bowling alley is still swinging. And I, I get this feeling, just it comes comes just occasionally. I wonder if Jaime is still up there,
2: <laughs>
1: dressed in his cardigan, his chinos, you know, standing there waiting for a GI to come in with a great backhand. And so I suppose each one of us in our life have little buildings with plaques on them. Here I learned keep your mouth shut. Here I learned Can you imagine your life spread out before you in all the buildings and the places where you learn real lessons? Here I learned, never give your right name. Here I learned that there's always somebody with a better backhand than you've got. You know, I I have a feeling that in, in life there are millions of people who are not sung, who never achieve fame, who have fantastic talent above those who have. Somewhere, there's a guy working in a garage that can hit a ball longer, further, and more consistently than
0: Mickey Mantle